Friday is normally a day that people get excited about. There's even that annoying Rebecca Black song called Friday. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, go check it out on YouTube later, and uh, you'll definitely thank me for it. Uh, but if you don't know, like that song is all about this idea of how great Friday is and how much we all love Friday. And it's written by someone who is young, but as we age, we feel the same way. We get towards Friday and we think about the weekend and we think about how exciting it is to get to the end of the week. And that always starts with Friday. Except sometimes Friday lands on a different day, or not a different day, that sounds kind of strange, but sometimes Friday gets kind of weird like it did a couple weeks ago and it was Friday the 13th. And all of a sudden, Friday that we're all excited about for the weekend turns into Friday that we begin to dread and begin to get a little bit worried about. And there's this trepidation that comes with as people begin to think about the idea of Friday. And especially Friday the 13th in 2020 led to all sorts of additional trepidation that people had. Now, there's all kinds of theories about where this fear of the number 13 came from, how it got connected to Friday. Uh, 13 on its own, uh, all throughout history, has always been sort of an unlucky number. Uh, as a race car fan, I know that with race cars, there's hardly ever a car in the Indy 500 or other races where they're the number 13. And uh, even, even as you think about when you've been traveling, if you've been to a hotel, you've probably gone into an elevator, and this is a crazy statistic, but it's something like 85 or 86% of hotels skip floor number 13 in their elevator. Now, of course, there's a 13th floor, but they just don't number it that way. They just go 12 to 14. And if you begin to think about that, it begins to seem a little bit ludicrous. Uh, it seems may maybe it's just a little absurd to think that uh, are we so fearful of a number that we even skip the number in an elevator, or refuse to put that number on the size of a car, or look at a, a day coming up and begin to have a fear about it. But this is an honest fear that a lot of people feel. Uh, there's even a name for it, and I looked this up this week. Uh, I didn't realize this, I didn't know this, but the word is triskaidekaphobia. So there's your word of the day, triskaidekaphobia. Say it with me if you want to, triskaidekaphobia. I didn't really hear you because obviously I'm on a camera, uh, but if your kids are watching with you, maybe this is a word we should teach them today. So the word of the day, guys, triskaidekaphobia. So anytime I say triskaidekaphobia, make sure to scream and wave your hands like crazy, all right? But there's a number, another number besides this number 13. Besides the fear of triskaidekaphobia, woo! Triskaidekaphobia, this fear of number 13, there's another number in our culture. A, a number that maybe is even a little more uh, scary. It's, it's a number that when people hear it, they begin to really get kind of weirded out no matter where this number shows up. And that number is the number 666. I thought about wearing a t-shirt today with that number on it just to kind of freak people out a little bit because it weirds people out. Anytime you see the number 666, I heard a story of a guy. He bought a car and the guy brought the contract to him with the price on it. And it said 666, but the last six was scratched out and it said 665. And the guy looked at the salesman and he said, well, why, why is it 665? And he said, well, my manager doesn't really like the number 666. And I think if we're all honest, we'd all kind of rather had they just changed it to 665. Maybe we would have kind of this weirdness about it and feel the same way. I don't know if you've been there, but you've bought something and it's 
$6.66. You have this moment where you look at the person on the other side of the counter. You just kind of look at each other like, should I buy something else to change that? Because that's kind of freaking me out a little bit, right? Well, there, there's other stories of this. I, I found this fascinating as I began to research this idea. Um, we all know that person, right? Who had 666 in their address. Or maybe their phone number had 666 in it. Well, here's the crazy thing. There was an entire community in Louisiana that had the number 666 at the beginning of their phone number. So, you know, like 555, whatever. They had 666. And enough people were freaking out that the phone company in the city got together and said, we're going to go ahead and just change that number. And people were allowed to change it, I think, to something like 719. And, and most people did. And if I'm being honest, as, as maybe irrational as it sounds, I would probably take that option too, because it seems weird. It's kind of freaky, and that's kind of what we get with this number 666. Now, there's even a name for this. I told you about Triskaidekaphobia. There is another word, and I, by the way, I heard somebody yell and scream when I said that, because that's the word of the day, but I'm going to give you another word of the day here. Uh, my dad is going to love this. My dad is the ultimate Scrabble player. He loves long words. Uh, this is the word right here for the fear of 666. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Jill go ahead and put this on the, the big screen. She's going to go ahead and bring this up large for us today. So, Jill, if you can go ahead and just pop that up. Uh, I want you guys to try to read along with me because I'm going to fail at reading this word. So I want you to join with me, but I, but I believe this is how it's pronounced. Uh, if you want to try to correct me later, I'll take some phone calls in this correction. But it looks like this, hexacosio, hexaconta, hexaphobia. So hexacosioi, hexaconta, hexaphobia. Uh, if that's wrong, it's the closest we're going to get, and that's just fine with me. So this is the fear of the number 666. Even just saying that, right? You're kind of like, can he stop saying 666? That, that's really freaking me out a little bit. Now, the reason I wanted to introduce you to this idea is because the book of Revelation, the book that we've been studying over the past couple of weeks, is broken down into what I call four parts, or four movements. Now, now, there's a lot of chapters, but those chapters can kind of be popped into certain sections. And, and I like to think of them as, as a movement, sort of as a, as a drama unfolding. And if you look at them as these four movement, it helps the book make a lot more sense. So the, these four movements, and the, the movement I want to look at today is chapters 6 through 20. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, and it's a whole lot to cover, but it begins to make sense when we think of it in terms of a movement. In chapter 6 through 20, we find all of this, I like to call it fun stuff, like 666, or something you may have heard of, the, the mark of the beast, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's where all of this stuff shows up, all of that symbolism, all of that imagery uh, that kind of freaks us out a little bit. And you've probably heard people talk about things like this. Maybe they've mentioned the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and maybe you weren't sure where that came from. Maybe you had an idea that the mark of the beast came from Scripture, but you weren't sure where that was found, but that's found right in these chapters. 666 is also found in these chapters as well. 
Now, a lot of people would probably like to avoid talking about this stuff, and, and I totally get it because it's weird. It has all these religious connotations and overtones that make us uncomfortable. But you know me and what I like to say. I like to say if we're a little uncomfortable with something, if, we're, if we think it's weird, if we're unsure about it, if it seems like a strange thing, it's probably worth leaning into and taking a look, deeper look to see what's going on there. So you know that we do this all the time. When we find something in Scripture and we look at it and we say, man, this seems weird. This seems odd. Well, it's probably worth taking a deeper look and you'll find something there. Um, right here is, our, is our, um, the picture, the artwork that goes along with our series. And as you can see, there's all kinds of strange images in this artwork. There's all kinds of weird depictions that you see here. And all of this imagery that you see here comes from the book of Revelation, including these things like 666 and the mark of the beast. Now, here's what I want to tell you. You probably have guessed this already. We've talked about this through this series, if you've listened to any of the weeks that we've talked about. But this book is often taken out of context. It's often misinterpreted. It's misused. And frankly, it oftentimes, people, when they misinterpret and misuse it, they oftentimes miss the point. These symbols were written in a context, and you have to peel back the layers and see that context. And this is especially really disturbing today. People in our world today are so prone to conspiracy theory and weird ideas and getting caught into all this kind of stuff. And you'll probably know or see people that you know posting things about how 666 was affiliated with something over here. Um, you know, people, people do things like point it towards uh, presidents or Bill Gates or the scientific community or something like that, or the mark of the beast. Uh, people right now, people all over the place are saying, oh yeah, that's definitely the vaccine. So I posted this on Facebook earlier this week. Um, just a real quick thing. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Absolutely not the mark of the beast. When you hear that kind of nonsense, just say no to conspiracy theory. That is not what's going on. And how can I say that so surely? How can I be so definitive about that? Well, listen, when you begin to peel back the layers on this book, when you see the context of where that stuff comes from, 666 and the mark of the beast and things like that, when you peel back the layers on it, as we're going to do, you're going to see that it points very specifically to the Roman Empire. See, this book that we're reading, Revelation, has all these overtones and all of these misunderstandings, all these ways that people have looked at it and ripped it out of context. But when we put it back within its context, we see that this was written to a group of persecuted Christians during a time when the Roman Empire was ruling most of the known world. And at that time, the Roman Empire, especially the emperor, had become incredibly, um, uh, the persecution had just turned up to the max. And things had gotten really hard, and there was a lot of suffering taking place, and Christians were being persecuted like they had never been before up until that point. And so things had become very difficult and really hard. And what happens in a time like that of intense persecution, historically, is that people begin to write these things that we call apocalypses or apocalyptic literature. And as we've talked about the past few weeks, the idea here is that they write this kind of book that helps them to have a hope that there's a future beyond the experience that they're having. But within that, they paint the experience they're having with symbol and metaphor. And it points out the absurdity of the political reality around them that is, that is giving them the persecution. 
So what happens in this book is that the author named John was sent to this island called Patmos, a prison island, and he begins to write this apocalypse to people in the persecuted church because he's being persecuted, being sent to this island. He's being sent there because early Christians would say a phrase that doesn't sound uh, really that big of a deal today, but back then it was a huge deal, this phrase, Jesus is Lord. When they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar or the emperor or the Roman Empire is not Lord. And that was a big deal because the Roman Empire, the emperor, Caesar was the Lord of all of these people. There was a a divinity kind of thing that was associated with the emperor. And John and these other Christians said, no, the only Lord is Jesus. That is our Lord. Back then, that was a punishable reality. So they began to be persecuted for it. So he writes down this apocalypse. And in it, he begins to create all of this metaphor and symbolism and really incredible language to point out the absurdity of the political reality around them and to show the emperor and the empire for exactly who they were, which is not the real Lord, which is not the true king, which is not the the, the, the one who founded the earth or controls the earth or rules the earth. He said, that is not who the emperor is. Now listen to this. This gets us back to number 666. Most scholars agree today that the number 666 is a reference to the emperor Nero, a historic figure in history. You can go back and you can read about the emperor Nero. When his name is put into Hebrew, and this is where this is important, when his name is placed into Hebrew, what we call transliterated into Hebrew, and the number values are added up, those values add up to the number 666. So Nero, translated into Hebrew, taken into um, values placed on each number and added up, turn into the number 666. You begin to see what John is doing here. Rather than naming Nero specifically, he uses this a number system that people would have understood at the time to realize, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, John is talking about Nero. Now here's how we know that the book is talking about Nero. Strangely enough, there are manuscripts of Revelation where the number is 616. And you look at that and you go, well, 616, did somebody mess up? Did somebody, why did they do that? What was that about? Well, here's the deal. If you drop the final letter of his name, of Nero's name, okay? If you drop the final letter, which actually in 666 is Neron, if you drop that N and you go to Nero and you translate it to Hebrew, you get 616. See, now here's the deal. The number 666 or 616, which you probably never feared before, has nothing to do with car prices, phone numbers, or addresses. What John is telling us here, what he was telling his original readers, and what we have to begin to discover as we explore and peel this back, is that John is talking very specifically about the Roman Empire. And when we examine things closely, we see that John, the author of Revelation, used symbol and metaphor, just like this, just like 666, or the mark of the beast, or other symbols as we're going to see, to point to the Roman Empire. Now, I want to jump ahead a little bit here because I want to see what John is doing. Remember, he's offering a scathing critique of the Roman Empire. And he's also offering hope 
that the evil it per perpetuated, okay, would be judged and ultimately defeated. And he offers a hope of a new reality on the other side of that persecution. So before we go on, before we read anything else, let's just stop here for a second. Let's back up. Let's make sure to summarize this. I told you there's a lot of content here, but this is so important for us to understand, to have an understanding here, because this has everything to do with the application later on and how important that is for us. John is writing to persecute people. And he's talking about the, the, the empire and the emperor and Caesar who was persecuting those specific people. Rather than naming them specifically by name, he does exactly what had been done throughout all of history in these books that we call apocalyptic literature, and he uses symbolism and metaphor to aim specifically at those people. So as people read these books, they recognize and see exactly who John was talking about. And within that scathing critique, within that judgment of the empire, and Nero in this case, he says there is hope on the other side of this. There is judgment for the, for the evil and the suffering that this empire and this, and this Caesar have caused in your life, and those things don't belong to the future reality that God is promising to you. So here's what I want to do. Let's jump in at Revelation 6. John gets to the symbolism of 666 in chapter 13, but this section, this movement I was telling you about, begins here in chapter 6, and we need to start here. There's a reason for that. Uh, and you're going to see the symbolism that it points to the Roman Empire, and then I want us to turn the corner and see what that has to do with us today. So listen to these words, this incredible symbolism. Don't get too caught up on it, but, but listen to the incredible symbolism here and, and the way in which John is writing. Here's what he says. He said, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now, last week we talked about the Lamb. We talked about the throne room. I want you to go back, if you're unsure of what we're talking about there, go back to week two. We've got a lot of content to cover, so I don't want to uh, get into discussing all of that today, but go back and listen to week two, and then come back to here to week three. But listen to this. Let's continue on here for a second. I watched as the Lamb open the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the li third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a, holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six, pound, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. That sounds strange, but you'll see what's happening here. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, uh, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, because the word of the Lord, I just got lost. Um, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, because the word of the God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brother and sister, were killed just as they had been. Now that is some weird, strange language, no doubt, right? So let's again begin to peel back the layers. Let's see what's happening with the context and begin to see what's taking place here. The four horsemen of the apocalypse represent a chain of events that aren't unique to the time of John. Even this word apocalypse isn't pointing to a specific time. It's, it's pointing more specifically to actions, to reality, to something taking place. You don't think of this in terms of like an apocalyptic idea of apocalypse somewhere here, but something that is taking place already. And now here's why this is important. These chain of events have happened throughout history. Listen to, again, as we look through these four horsemen and what they represent. You've got conquest, violence, war, economic injustice, famine and disease. That's where that two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day, the economic injustice of the day. So listen to that again. Conquest and violence, war, economic injustice, famine, and disease. Now here's why this is important. John is pointing out here that God doesn't create these realities. I want to make sure that we hear and understand that because that is one of the most misinterpreted understandings that takes place in this text. First is that we see it as something taking place off in the future instead of this apocalypse as a reality around us in the present. And the second mistake that can easily be made is that we see God as causing these things to take place. And that's not what's happening here at all. John is pointing out here that God doesn't create these realities. See, but now we know why. The way of empire has created these realities. As we dig deeper into chapter 6 through 20, and we get back into these 666 and Mark of the Beast things, we're reminded he's talking about Nero, he's talking about Caesar, he's talking about the empire. And the empire is responsible for the conquest, the violence, the war, the economic injustice, the famine and disease that is taking place. Now, here's where we can shift a little bit into application. This isn't unique to the Roman Empire. And you know that. This is why this book is still relevant today for us. This is a part, these realities are a part of every empire throughout history. Now, I wrote some very specific notes here, and I want to dig into my notes a little bit because I want you to hear this. When we look at history with a critical eye, which is so important for us to do, it's one of the things I'm so glad that my daughter is learning in school, is to look at history with a critical eye. We see that even in our own history, we'll find this pattern repeated over and over and over again. Conquest and violence, war, economic justice, famine, and disease. See, again, we aren't looking for these things to happen. They're happening around us every day in the lives of people around the world. We find ourselves more sheltered as we can choose what we watch, maybe what we read. But for people in the first century, this was their experience. This was their experience on the suffering side of the way of conquest and the growth of the Roman Empire. And it's one that we get a glimpse here. So what John is saying is this is a reality of our world. 
These four horsemen represent the things that empire bring into the world. And maybe we don't experience it, or maybe we don't see it. Maybe the life that we live allows us to not see these things often as much. But John is giving us a glimpse and saying, here is the reality for the first century. He's telling the people in his readers to look around and realize and lean into this uncomfortable reality that the empire around them is responsible for these things, conquest and violence, war, economic injustice, famine, and disease. And then next, John writes something else that we see. With the symbolism of the sixth seal, John shows how the destructive of the tendencies of the empire have implications on the earth as well. This is really, this really gets interesting. He said, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth, made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Human greed and injustice and misuse of the world's resources have created pain and destruction. I find this part of this chapter fascinating because I, I think when we look at the first section, maybe verses 1 through 11, we talk about the four horsemen, we talk about conquest and violence and war and economic injustice and famine and disease, maybe we get that. But then we see here that he talks about how this that reality of empire brings in all of this suffering and all of this pain. And then he says, ultimately, the way of empire leads to the destructive reality of our world. Now, see, this is a place where this begins to become very real today. And I'm not trying to say that John was specifically talking about this moment. But what he was doing is he's writing a warning to these people and saying, this is not the way that the world was meant to be. This is not what the world was meant to look like. There wasn't meant to be this kind of injustice. There wasn't meant to be this kind of suffering. There wasn't mean to me this kind of pain and this kind of war and this kind of death. And he said, the world cannot contain, cannot hold that reality. Now, I realize this sounds really depressing, and maybe it sounds like a judgment on the way of our culture, but I think that's the point that John was making, and the one that we need to come to terms with today. This is what I wrote down. I said that John is using this imagery to show us the ugliness of the empire, and to warn us of how the way of empire seduces us to acquiesce to the idea that this is just the way things are. It tempts us to give up the radical way of Jesus, the beauty of God's creation, and to lose hope in how God wants us to live. So towards the end of this section, John turns the corner, and he invites us into a new reality. 
So he paints this incredibly ugly picture of empire. The destructive reality that's there. The ugliness and the pain and the suffering that it causes. And he makes us uncomfortable with it. No matter who we are, no matter when we live, as we read this, we begin to be uncomfortable about the reality around us. And then John invites us into a new reality. Revelation 18. He says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. That's fascinating language. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. So you won't take part in this destructive behavior. And so you won't receive the plagues, the penalties, the reality that it causes. This invitation here challenges us about our relationship to empire. Here's a couple questions. Do the things that we do benefit the least, the last, and the lost? Let me read that again because that is what we find that Jesus says that God cares about, right? The, the way of empire cares about greed and more and richness, but not the way of Jesus. So do the things that we do benefit the least, the last, and the lost? Do they reflect the sacrifice and suffering at the center of the gospel? Let me read that again. Do the things that we choose to do reflect the sacrifice and suffering at the center of the gospel? Or do they reflect the power and pain that is antithetical to the way of Jesus? Now, here's where this gets real. The, the closing chapters of Revelation reveal a new creation, a future reality, where God restores, renews, and redeems this world. And we're going to talk about that next week. But here's where we are today. We don't live in the closing chapters of Revelation. That is not our reality. We live in chapters 6 through 20. John would say that is our reality. He's going to paint a picture of the incredible hope to come for the people in the persecuted church at his time and a picture that we can begin to believe and move toward as well. But he says for the people in his time, the persecuted church, the experience they're having, the empire around them has created this reality that they find in chapter 6 through 20. And anybody who reads this up until today and up until the future, until time we don't know, we live in that same reality, the reality of empire. We are in the now, but the not yet. We are in the now where we can see the future, but we're not yet there. In our faith, we can see that many of the things that make up our lives don't belong to that future. See, now this is complicated. This is where I want to be really clear about this. Throughout the scriptures, we see people trying to navigate their faith and their citizenship, their faith and belonging to the empires of this world. If we go back a few pages in the New Testament, we see Paul taking a very different approach at times as he dealt with the reality of empire. But here, John is very, very clear about one thing. As John closes up this section, 
what I call this movement of, of chapters 6 through 20, he shows the way of the empire being cast into a lake of fire. He's going to again use symbolism. He's going to again use imagery. And he's going to point to this idea of empire, and he's going to show it being cast into a lake of fire. And this is what he's trying to do. He's showing that the symbolism shows us that the destructive tendencies of the way of empire have no place in our future hope. The destructive ways of empire, and this is the good news here, have no place in the future. And all of us would agree with this, wouldn't we? Conquest and violence and war and economic injustice and famine and disease have no place in the future. This is incredibly good news. This is the hope that God is giving us for a restored future, a world that he restores and he redeems and, and he renews, a future that doesn't have any of the ugliness. That's the future that we work toward. That's what is so beautiful about the things that we talk about, that we look at the future and we say, this is the kingdom of God. This is what God wants our world to look like. This is what we want to work toward. This is what as believers in Jesus, this is what we're trying to do. As believers and followers of Jesus, none of us look around trying to create more suffering. None of us look around trying to create more greed. None of us look around trying to be more destructive of our world. When we follow Jesus, all of those things become convicted in our hearts. And we realize that we are responsible to care for this incredible creation that God has given us. That we're to see the value of other humans and love people and see the image of God in everyone. And that we're supposed to look at the world and say, we want this world to be more like the way that God wants it to be, not less. As I talked about last week, that's the incredible reality of the prayer that Jesus gave us. When he gave a prayer to his people, he said that we would pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That that future reality and hope where none of this suffering is, that that reality would be the reality today. And the thing about prayer is that we're not praying for God to simply do something. We're praying that God would convict our hearts that we would do something. That we would change this world. That we would be a part of this. That we would see the ugliness around us that is caused by these things and say, no more. It doesn't belong in the future. And as a person who believes in the redemption and the renewal and the restoration of this world, it doesn't belong here either. If that stuff doesn't belong there, it doesn't belong here. And I'll have nothing to do with creating that in this space today. In fact, I will work against it and I will push it aside. And I'll work it to cast it into this fire that burns it up and takes it away. Here's how he says that language. Here's how he talks about that future hope in the way of empire being cast away. He says, And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Beast. This language points to empire. And he said, This stuff does not exist. This stuff does not get to go off into the future. Using this symbolism and this language here, this incredible, uh, the way that he's talking here, he's saying that is all going to be cast off and away. In 1788, a man named John Newton wrote a pamphlet 
It was called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. This man, John Newton, had served on slave ships for many years, and his writings described the horrific conditions on those ships. It described the disgusting reality of selling people as property. He wrote these words in that pamphlet. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. I, listen to that again. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. This pamphlet from 1788 was reprinted several times, and it was widely read throughout England. Eventually, it was sent to every member of parliament, and it made a difference. The English government outlawed slavery in 1807. The law outlawing slavery in England took effect in August, and John Newton died in December of that year. He was able to see the, this horrific thing that he had participated in and then worked against not have a future in the place that he called home. But the story doesn't end there. This same man who worked to outlaw slavery, who hated that he had participated in something so awful, also wrote the words to one of the songs that we sang this morning. That song is a reflection of God's grace in his life and the sorrowness he felt for the pain he had caused. The most well-known words in that song are these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. These words take on new meaning when we know the words or the meaning behind them. When we begin to hear the story, when we see what he had experienced, when he saw how he worked against slavery, you begin to see something else happening here. Words like lost, found, blind. We see that he was pointing to a specific part of his life, a part of his life where he was blind to the pain and suffering he had caused. The reality that he was lost in this world of sin and destructive behavior. And then he became a follower of Jesus. And he says he's no longer lost, but he's found. He knows what home is supposed to look like. He's no longer blind to the suffering that he's participated in and caused, but he can see it. He can see it even when it hurts. And then he has the incredible moment here of realizing 
the amazing grace. That despite being what he calls a wretch, where he was unable and participating in, causing the suffering around, he says, in spite of that, he turned from it, he left it, he cast it down, and he experienced God's amazing grace. He chose to work to cast down that system because of his faith. He knew slavery and the injustice and suffering didn't belong to the future reality of hope in which he believed. Through his faith, he saw value. He saw the image of God in all people. Here's some closing thoughts that I wrote that I think are so important for us. When we follow Jesus, we are confronted by the things that have become so normal to us, things that we don't even see. Greed, injustice, and violence. John would call these things the way of empire. And we may not actively participate in them, but maybe that's not the challenge here. The challenge is to ask ourselves, are we actively working against them? Where the world desires war, are we as followers of Jesus seeking peace? Where the world creates injustice, are we as followers of Jesus a voice for justice? Are we generous, loving, peace-seeking people who see the value in all people and fight for justice in all places. When we embrace that, we live in a new way. We overthrow it in our own lives. And we believe in hope beyond this world that we see around us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the words that we find here. I thank you for the challenge that we find here. I thank you for what John has written here. God, I pray that we would not just simply see it as words written on a page, but God, that we would see how these words continue to live, that we would see how these words that were written by John continue to come to us today that have come down throughout history. God, as empires have risen and fallen, God, we know that you are still the one on the throne. And God, as the empires of the world and the empires that we create in our own lives create greed and injustice and pain and suffering, God, we know that none of those things have a hold in the future that you have for this world. So God, help us to not live just in the now, but help us to have our eyes set on the future hope and glory, the goodness and mercy, the redemption and the renewal and restoration of this world. And God, help us to join you in that restoration 
in that redemption. God, thank you for saving us, for bringing Jesus to us to point away. God, help us to put our lives, our, our trust, and our hope in him. God, we love you, and we thank you today. It's your name that we pray. Amen.